Uh, let us pray. Grant unto us, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that in the proclamation of your word, we would see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When we read a passage like this from Ephesians about the alienation between Jew and Gentile, it's hard to imagine how bitter that division really was. We've seen sectarian division before on our TV screens. The Troubles in Ireland would be a good example of that. Though many would say that that was more, that that was more about politics and power than it was religion. More recently, the Middle East is constantly in the news as a hotbed of fighting and sectarianism. Again, it's hard to believe that their differences were merely religious. What is certain is that their differences seem to be intractable. The only sustained evidence I'm aware of that brings Arabs and Jews together is the Gospel. And even then, it's not easy given the cultural baggage that each of these groups carry. And if it's hard now, it was just as difficult in the first century. As William Barclay writes, he says, The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they said, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that is made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. And it's with this background that Paul writes to the largely Gentile Christians in Ephesus and Asia Minor to say from verse 11 that though the Jews or the so-called circumcision despised them, they were now included in Christ Jesus. That though once excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, they've now been brought near through the blood of Christ. And this is a great privilege, because Israel as a nation was singled out by God to be a holy and distinct people. To be a fellow citizen with Israel, therefore, made you an heir to the Abrahamic covenant of promise. And the promise was that Israel would be a great nation, blessed by God. And the Jews relished that promise, but they twisted it. They turned privilege into favoritism, and instead of being a light and a blessing to the Gentiles, they detested them as heathen dogs. But Christ, as we read in verse 13, has brought the Gentile believers, who were once far away, he's brought them near, near to believing Israel and to God through the blood of the cross. By his death on the cross, Jesus has become peace to both Jew and Gentile alike. The two, he's made to be one. And what Christ has destroyed is what Paul describes in verse 14 as the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And the imagery comes directly from the temple. And a diagram of it can be seen on your sermon outline. The priests had most immediate access to God, for their court was adjacent to the holy place. East of this was the court of Israelite men, and further east 
was the court of the women. From this level, there was a descent of five steps to a walled platform. And then on the other side of that wall were 14 more steps to another wall, beyond which was the court of the Gentiles. And that court encircled the temple and its inner courts. And from any part of it, the Gentiles, well, they could only look up and view the temple, but they weren't allowed any nearer. They were cut off. They were alienated by this dividing wall of hostility. And even though the wall was only a one and a half metre stone barricade, on it were displayed at intervals warning notices in Greek and Latin. And the notices did not say trespassers will be prosecuted, but rather trespassers will be executed. This then is the historical, the social, and the religious background to the passage. And if all you read was verses 11 to 14, you could easily get the impression that what Christ has done is that he's opened up the way for we, the Gentiles, to become Jews, that co-heirs with them and recipients of the law and the covenants and the promise. But that's not what Paul is saying. In verse 15, Paul says that Jesus abolished the law in his flesh with his commandments and regulations. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore for us the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is death for everyone who does not carry out its commandments and regulations. Jesus abolished the law in his flesh by taking upon himself the penalty of the law for our sin, our failure. Now whatever else that might mean, it certainly doesn't mean that Christ has opened up the way for Gentiles to become Jews. You don't become a Jew by abolishing the law. But we need not wonder why God abolished the law at the cross, because Paul tells us in the second half of verse 15 that God's purpose was to make one new man out of the two, thus making peace. What God has created is altogether new. Though once there was only Jew and Gentile at enmity with one another, there is now also believing Jews and believing Gentiles, those that are in Christ Jesus. And only in Christ Jesus is peace to be found. For in this one body of those in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in verse 16, God has reconciled to himself both Jew and Gentile, and he did this through the cross. And now in Christ Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility, well, it's broken down. All who believe have received the one Holy Spirit of promise. All who believe now have unfettered access into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God the Father. Though once we were foreigners and aliens, as Paul says in verse 19, we're now fellow citizens, not with unbelieving Judaism, but with believing Israel, with God's people. We're now members of God's household. And that household is the church, the one holy, catholic and apostolic church. And it doesn't consist of all Roman Catholics or all Anglicans or, or whatever denomination you wish to name. It only consists 
of those who believe, those chosen in Christ Jesus. It only consists of believing Jew and Gentile alike, those marked and sealed with God's Holy Spirit. And Paul describes that household of God, that church, from verse 20. He says it, it has a foundation upon the apostles and the prophets. The people of God and the household of God are not concepts unique to the New Testament or the Old. Salvation by grace through faith was always God's message through the prophets. What Jesus confirmed in the Gospels and the apostles announced in the epistles is what God had always promised through the law and the prophets. And if the apostles and prophets are the foundation, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. All the covenants and the promises of the Old Testament point forward to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And all that the New Testament records and describes point backwards to the cross and resurrection and from there forwards to the consummation of all things in heaven and earth, even in Christ Jesus the Lord. And we, the church, the people of God, whose foundation is the apostles and the prophets, whose chief cornerstone is Christ himself, we're joined together with all the saints from the Old Testament through until now. And together with them, we, the church, we are what Paul describes in verse 21 as the holy temple in the Lord. The temple in Jerusalem is no longer the place where God dwells. God's dwelling place on earth is now in his church, in his people. We, and not the building, are the household of God. And though God is everywhere, he has no special place of residence in this building or in any house made by man. But God does choose to dwell, to take up residence by his Holy Spirit in the hearts of his faithful and believing people. So having looked at two chapters of Ephesians thus far, we now have a fairly comprehensive, though not an exhaustive doctrine of the church. And I guess the question that it raises is this. How are we to understand ourselves as a part of Christ church in relation to other religions, other denominations, and indeed others in our own congregations? For certainly we have no ongoing issues with the Jewish-Gentile divide. And apart from secularism, the only big worldview divide that I can think of is that between Christianity and Islam. Now, despite the vast differences, some would actually insist that the two religions are part of the one family because they're both monotheistic, one God, and they both trace their ancestry to Abraham. Their argument is that unity should rest on these claims and that differences should be put aside. But the only people who say that are either unbelieving secularists who think that all religions are the same, or grossly naive religious people who, along with the Beatles, are still singing All You Need Is Love. To do, to do, to do. 
but both are an insult to Muslim and Christian alike because both views have no respect at all for the teachings of Christ or Muhammad. And then they present their own shallow selves as the wise and the knowing. So profound are the theological differences between Christianity and Islam that there is no solid ground in the middle, only points of commonality on the margins of orthodoxy. So, is this any reason why we cannot love and respect and seek to engage with our Muslim neighbours? Well, the answer is absolutely not. We, we can and we should. But we do them no favours and we earn from them no respect if we regard them as if they were brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not. The other big religious divide that I can think of that's pertinent to our understanding of the church is that of the Reformation, and the divide between Protestants and Roman Catholicism. Of course, the Reformation is fresh in our minds from last year, and for many, including us, it was a reason for celebration. And that's not to say that everything that happened then was God-honouring, let alone respectful of human dignity and personhood. For atrocities on both sides of the theological divide were perpetrated in the name of God and truth. But I do want to say that the Reformation was not a mistake. It was not a huge misunderstanding. It was the restoration of the authority of God's word and it was a recovery of the gospel of grace. And as far as the doctrine of the church is concerned, Rome, at its most generous, would render all Protestants to the margins of a circle, a circle that centred on the Apostle Peter and an unbroken line of Roman bishops from the first century until now. Now, you don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to have even read Ephesians to realise how problematic that is. For history alone will tell you that Rome can make no credible claim to continuity with apostolic teaching, let alone an apostolic succession of bishops. For so often in history, both the doctrine and the morals of Roman bishops have been decidedly extra-biblical. So, is Rome the one true church? Well, the answer is absolutely not, but nor are the Anglicans or any other denomination. Those that belong to the one true, holy, Catholic and apostolic church are only those who are in Christ Jesus. And to be in Christ, a member of his holy temple, with all the saints, is a matter of being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that happened when we heard and when we believed the word of truth the gospel of our salvation. Neither baptism, nor confirmation, nor our name on a church register makes us to be members of Christ's body. Only grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone can do that. The very things that Rome explicitly denies. So, when we consider our relationship with Islam and Roman Catholicism, there are two mistakes that we need to avoid. The first mistake is creating 
artificial barriers that just shouldn't exist. We have no reason to treat or regard them as anything less than those loved by God and created in his image and likeness. And we have every reason to seek to engage with them at all sorts of levels so that we might be a blessing to them just as Israel should have been a blessing to the nations. We get it wrong in practice when we get it wrong in theology and doctrine. The second mistake that we easily make, well, it isn't creating artificial barriers. It's manufacturing an artificial unity. A common humanity and a common social ethic does not make us brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of the household of God. To think that it does is to sacrifice the gospel on the altar of cultural conformity. Again, we get it wrong in practice when we get it wrong in theology and doctrine. So what about our own church? Shouldn't we be examining ourselves no less than critiquing those who are not as we are? And the answer is yes, of course, we, we should. It's just that the differences between us, well, they're harder to see. Unity is more apparent simply because we meet together in the same building at the same time every Lord's Day. But when we do get unity wrong and we fail to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, well, the consequences are devastating. At best, it will stop the church growing in any sense of the word, and at worst, it will destroy the church from the inside out. Instead of being salt and light to the world, we become bitter herbs and darkness. And again, when we do get it wrong in practice, it's because we get it wrong in theology and doctrine. So, for example, if our doctrine of the church is little more than a theology that replaces Solomon's temple in Jerusalem with St. Augustine's temple in Inverell, then we shall think that church is the place to meet with God. For here we suppose that in some form the Shekinah glory dwells, and it's here above all else that we can commune with God. And as we come to Holy Communion, we come only so far as the dividing rail that separates us from that elevated and holy place. And from there we receive, from our not-so-great and not-so-very-high priest, the sacrament that sustains us, body, soul and spirit. And when church is done, we greet our friends and we go home until next week when we return for a top-up of grace. Now, I realise that that's a parody, but it's too close to reality to dismiss as nonsense. For in practice, that is what so easily happens. And though we understand well that God is holy and deserves our worship and our honour, we so often fail to see one another as holy, as set apart in Christ Jesus, as indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. We rightly expect to find holiness in God, in the Gospel, in the sacraments, but we fail to recognise holiness 
when it sits down next to us in the pews. And though we rightly do communion with reverence and thanksgiving, we don't readily see it as the name suggests. For communion is nothing less than a common union. A common union that we have in Christ Jesus and therefore with one another. For as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, he says the cup of thanksgiving that we drink, it really is a common union, a fellowship in the blood of Christ. And the bread that we break, it really is a common union, a fellowship in the body of Christ. For we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Brothers and sisters, church and communion can never ever be primarily about me and my private relationship with God. For though God calls us as individuals to himself, he only ever calls us into a family, into his household. To be in Christ no less unites us to God than it does to one another. To be in Christ it breaks down every possible barrier that might separate or divide us. We come to church not just to meet with God and our friends. We come to church to worship God together, to share our common union with those who are our family, brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow citizens with God's people, and together we're being built as a holy temple. We are the place where God dwells. And such is the apostolic teaching of Christ's first church in Jerusalem, in Ephesus and Asia Minor. May it continue to be the apostolic teaching and practice of Christ's church in Inverell. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ Jesus you have reconciled us not only to yourself but to all who have received the grace of sins forgiven and access into your holy presence. Forgive us when we abuse the privilege of grace and fail to love those that you have created and died for on the cross of Calvary. Forgive us when we look for unity apart from Christ I still want to call a Christian. But above all, our Father, forgive us when we fail to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, those whom you have chosen and redeemed and called to be your sons and daughters. Give us eyes to see one another as you see us and a heart to love one another as you have first loved us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.